Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 173. So glad you could join me. Um, Deanna O'Reilly is here. She'll be our main guest in about 15 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know we do too, so please do remember to click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. I mean, clicking the like button is worth getting a YouTube account for if you don't already have one. I know a lot of our viewers don't, but you might as well get a YouTube account, then you can participate in the chat window there, and uh, you can hit like and subscribe and click the bell for notifications. If you're on other platforms watching later after the fact, uh, you can go ahead and leave a review or something like that if you haven't already. Anything you do to help spread poetry around the internet is greatly appreciated. Now, as always, we're going to start with our Poets Respond Poets. We have two lined up this week. Um, we have uh, A.E. Hines is here. Um, to start out, he was Sunday's poet, and uh, here he is right now, A.E. Hines. Hey, A.E., how you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. It's been uh, a while. I've, I've recognized your name in the submissions for a long time. It's great to have you in an issue, finally. Uh, you yeah, mentioned it it's, it's been a bit, and uh, it's always a pleasure to get that first one in. So, uh, so glad we could. And a beautiful poem. This is just really moving. And memorable. Do you want to explain what the poem's about? Sure. Yeah. I um, some people this made national news. There was a pretty major power outage in North Carolina, rural North Carolina, a week or so ago, and uh, um, someone essentially shot up a couple of substations in a coordinated attack to bring down part of the power grid. And um, although it's not been confirmed, I know that there's a lot of investigation centering around the fact that uh, it might have been an act of hate to prevent the uh, a drag show that was going on in a small town there um, that had received a tremendous amount of vitriol and protest. And so that was sort of the the spark of this poem was the that act and sort of a, a response sort of the poem is meant to be a bit defiant in terms of the response to that act yeah what what i loved about the poem too is that i you know i heard that story myself of course it was one of the big news stories of the of the week and um and it didn't occur to me that yeah the show would completely go on even with the power out which is what the point is here i mean of course and of course it did and um you know you just you describe it so well and beautifully in this poem uh, do you want to go ahead and read it i'd love to the title of the poem is The Night the Lights Went Out in Moore County, North Carolina. These must be dark times if you think shooting up a substation and blacking out the lights will shut down a drag show. Have you ever been to a drag show? Yes, there will be singing, even in the dark. Unflappable queens, black belting Beyonce and Madonna, hovering in the quivered glow of bar-top candles. Silver beams from a hundred mobile phones, showering them like bedazzled songbirds. Lashes glittering like wings and lifting them from a thin nest of stars on the soft breeze of applause and our waving dollar bills. We've labored in the night long enough to know how to fashion our own halos make our own light. I, I doubt you've ever dropped a copper penny to preserve a vase of daisies or know a jigger of vodka brings valentine roses back to their feet. But no, you'll find no wilting flowers here, just at the edge of the stage. With its green, stiffened spine, the blue, boozy and voluptuous tulip takes no bows. With outstretched petals, outlasting gravity and death 
it refuses to bend. Yeah, just a beautiful poem. That was Sunday's poem, um, The Night the Lights Went Out in Moore County, North Carolina. And I was wondering if you, have you followed the story at all after the initial? Like, are people charged with, with like domestic terrorism or is there any kind of follow-up as to the motive for sure or anything like that? There were a few folks, even some folks that were involved in the January 6th uprising that um, uh, got investigated early on in the first hours because they posted things on social media saying they knew why the power had gone out mm. and they had been vocal in this in this um, protest. But uh, no, my understanding is the uh, Duke Power and the uh, FBI are being very circumspect about what their leads are. Um, but the rumors around, I have connections in North Carolina, are people really do truly believe that was what inspired this. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. It may not have been. Either way, it was certainly an act of terror. And given the the increased violence and the hate speech around anyone who's different right now, um, it, you know, after the Club Q shooting recently in in Colorado, it, of course, people are worried that, you know, the queer community is being targeted yet again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we'll stay tuned and see what what we find out. Yeah, well, definitely a, a powerfully defiant poem and the kind of poem that like probably wrote itself once you had the idea for it. But I'm so glad you did it so well and so vividly and, and memorably. Thanks so much for sharing that, Earl. Glad to have you on the on the broadcast. And thanks for sharing this again. Thanks for having me. Yep. Take care. Um, yeah, that was A.E. Hines with uh, The Night the Lights Went Out in Moore County, North Carolina. So check that out on Rattle.com, of course. Uh, that was Sunday's poem. And we have Tuesday's poet here as well. Um, James May or James Davis May is right here with uh, Sentimental Hogwash. So uh, let's say hi to James. Hey, Tim. Uh, Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the poem. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's been a bit for you, too. Um, I'm so glad you could join us again. Do you want to explain a little bit about what this, how this poem came to be and and the the background of it? Yeah, um, I, um, I've I've been writing a lot about mental illness lately. Um, I have a book uh, that will be out in February that's sort of about a major depressive episode. And I, I thought those poems were done. I thought I sent them off. And um, my wife, who's also a poet and wrote uh, her last book, is about um, postpartum depression. We keep joking that our next books are going to be about joy and happiness. <laughs> and um, then I ended up watching uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, you know, America's favorite Christmas movie that has suicide right at the um, uh, center of it. So, um, the poem's kind of about uh, being a few years removed from those feelings, but recognizing them um, and also sort of realizing that I you know, don't actually feel them anymore, which is a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but in a great, you know, open and honest way to confront this topic, too, which is so important as um, as we go through. And, and, you know, suicide is an increasingly big problem in the United States and around the, the world. Um, and yeah, too, the, the It's a Wonderful Life. It's such a I mean, I can't watch without crying. And uh, we watch it every Christmas Eve. And, um, you know, it's one of those traditions, like get the tears out and watch It's a Wonderful Life. Um, Yeah. So do you want to go ahead and read it? And no one's heard this before. So uh, prepare for Tuesday's poem. So this is uh, Sentimental Hogwash, which is what uh, Mr. Porter says to uh, George Bailey at one point. So Sentimental Hogwash. A man who hasn't thought seriously about killing himself in over a year walks out of the living room as the father in the movie stumbles toward the bridge in order to jump from it. There are, after all, things to do in the kitchen, pans to soak and plates to rinse, and no one is watching him or the movie for that matter. His wife trudging through a stack of student papers, his daughter drawing dragons on a sketch pad, and the feeling unfurling like a fever was so mild at first it seemed silly something that until then was dormant but now threatened to make him cry. 
And though he isn't afraid to cry in front of his family, he didn't want to this time because they might worry, and then he would worry that the depression was coming back again. It's snowing in the movie, the actor's face obscured by a five o'clock shadow and a sizzling agony that's surprising for a supposedly heartwarming film. The lie is that seeing the world without you will make enduring this world easier, that you're some sort of butterfly flapping its wings, birthing not a hurricane, but a music that saves everyone you love from ruin. The truth is, the world would be just as terrible without you as it is with you in it, give or take a little pain and pleasure. There's nothing left to do in the kitchen, so the man sits back down and watches the father and the angel shivering as they save each other in different ways. And then the man's wife looks at him and says, thanks for coming back. We get lonely when you leave. And he apologizes and promises to stay until the end. A scene that he knows is sappy, but loves anyway, even though it will make him cry a little, just loudly enough that he can't pretend that no one notices him. Yeah, that was going to be Tuesday's poem, which you'll read tomorrow in your daily email, Sentimental Hogwash by James Davis May. And so, James, let me know, um, is the, the book that you um, have out now, is that going to be coming out soon? Are you shopping it around still? What what level are you at in the manuscript process? Because I've, I've had... Um, I mean, several people have recommended you be a guest, a main guest on the show, and it'd be nice to have you once the book comes out. Absolutely, uh, it will be out in February, so it's oh, uh, unu- uh-huh. yeah, it's um, unusually grand ideas. So it's titled after one of the more uh, sort of poetic uh, side effects of antidepressants. Oh, so very yeah. interesting. Yeah, so have a uh, have your press send us a copy, and we'll definitely get you on like sometime after the book comes out. That'd be perfect because uh, I think it was a. Uh, a couple people, but Michael Mark is one of the ones who keeps saying, you got to have Jim on. So, uh, so if Michael Mark tells me something, I believe it. So we have to do that. I, me too. And, you know, Michael, I, I should give uh, some credit for really help with this poem. So thank you, Michael, if you're out there. Excellent. I'm sure he is. Well, thanks so much, Jim. It's always a, a pleasure and, and great to meet you, see you for the first time. And hope we'll have you on like maybe in February. Sounds great. Thank cool. you, Tim. Thanks a lot. Take care. That was James Davis May with tomorrow's poem, Sentimental Hogwash. Um, about uh, It's a Wonderful Life and, and Depression and a uh, wonderful poem. Check that out tomorrow. You can see James Davis may read it again, too, on our webpage tomorrow. And we're going to take a quick break and go to tonight's main guest. Um, tonight's main guest is, of course, Dion O'Reilly. Um, we'll be here in just a few minutes. I'm going to so sit back and uh, hold tight, fill up your drinks. I'm going to make sure everything works, and we will be right back with, uh, with Dion O'Reilly. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Like I said, tonight's guest is Dion O'Reilly. Uh, Dion's debut book, Ghost Dogs, was published in February 2020 by Terrapin Books. Her second collection, Sadness of the Apex Predator, was chosen for the 2024 Portage Poetry Series from the University of Wisconsin's Cornerstone Press. Her poems and essays appear in The Sun, Rattle, The Cincinnati Review, The Slow Town, a whole bunch of other great places. Um, and she's won a whole bunch of awards, too. She teaches poetry workshops in person and on Zoom and is a member of the Hive Poetry Collective, which produces poetry radio shows, podcasts, and events. So we'll talk about that, too. Maybe I can learn something uh, here. Uh, Deanna is also a screener for the Catamaran Literary Reader. So that's cool. Check out her website, DeannOReilly.wordpress.com. And here she is, Dion O'Reilly. Hey, Dion, how you doing? Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. Great opening readers. Yeah, definitely. And I think you you know one of them, apparently, A.E. A. Yeah. Hines. 
Yeah. I'm going to interview him on my podcast. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that later because I'm wondering, I haven't heard it yet or seen it. So I'm curious how you do it, what the format is and, and how I can make mine better. But, um, but in the meantime, let's talk about your book, Ghost Dogs. And I think you want to start with a title poem. So let's read that and uh, get everybody into the, the poetry spirit. Get them into the groove. Yeah. Okay. Um, ready? Ghost Dogs. 200 pounds apiece with strong bodies, great black heads, and sad, sagging faces. They were my companions through the long years of childhood. Mastiffs, herds of them, studs, a handful of bitches, scores of puppies, bored in dusty clumps. They guarded the driveway, pulling themselves up onto oversized padded feet to trail my horse through the hills, then with surprising speed, racing up deer trails in futile pursuit of coyotes or bobcats. My friends risked stitches in their thighs by knocking on the door. And when the proud cars of boyfriends pulled up, a gleaming 68 Camaro, a convertible Bel Air, the pack ambushed them, ferocious muzzles breathing steam, drooling on the windows. Now, all these years after leaving home, I miss the dogs, how formidable they were, negotiating between me and the world. I have no silent creature at my side to touch on her wrinkled brow, no coiled animal to summon in love and ready to die. Yeah, and that was the title poem from Ghost Dogs on Dion O'Reilly's first collection from Terrapin Books. And, uh, and that was just such a vivid poem. Uh, the, the, really, throughout your work, the images really stand out as a, as a highlight. And, and that image of, the, of so many um, you know, mastiffs um, sitting around the driveway is one that'll stick with me for a long time. When I was a kid, uh, not a kid, but like a teenager, my friend Tom, I went over to pick him up and his, uh, his mother-in-law had a, a dog, like raised mastiffs. And he was like, watch out for, the-. and then I walked in the door and they're just like attacking me. And I like ran into the room. They're huge. It's scary. I don't know. Um, so, so what was it like uh, growing up with, uh, with dogs like that? And, and, and how do you, um, I don't know, how do you remember them? Like what, what was the, what the breeds like and why did you have so many mastiffs? I'm kind of curious to start. Well, you know, it's a good question. Why my parents felt like they had to have these huge dogs. I mean, I mean, it's, I, it's, I think the poem is sort of asking the question, mm-hmm. um, why did we need this ferocious interface between us and the world? They were dangerous animals. I mean, they loved us, but they were dangerous animals. I run into people still to this day around town and they go, you still have those dogs? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think that people choose ferocious dogs. Um, it, it's sort of a way to channel their violence. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, they don't feel safe. I, I love them, though. They were yeah. like my siblings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they're safe to the family, right? I mean, they're they're protective, and um, and I think there's something about about being, you know, so big and so scary feeling, but then also loving at the same time. Like there's such a big contrast between the two. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
They were ferocious, but very loving. You're right. That's that's what makes them interesting. That's that's what makes them poetry. Yeah, right yeah, for yeah. sure. So so let's talk about poetry in general and just how, how did you become a poet? I'm always curious in that question. People have a lot of good stories usually. Was there a reason that, that anything that drew you to poetry versus some other form of art or literature? Or is there a reason that you that you get into poems? Well, I'm also a painter. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of my paintings behind me. Um, I'm not painting much these days, but I have dabbled in other arts. I was a dancer. Um, Well, I lived in this isolated family compound growing up, and my father had a huge library. And I didn't have much else to do, and... I had a facility for it. I, oh, I went to a private school for a while, this weird private school. Um, oh, it was a weird school. Um, it was run by a Mormon lady, and there were 10 of us, and we were all different grades. But she made us memorize a poem and recite it every 10 days. We took turns doing it, and we had to write a poem every night. Hmm. Homework. Oh, wow, every night. That's a lot of poems. Every night yeah. we had to write a poem, 20 sentences, and a letter. Oh wow, that is some serious homework. But uh, I but, loved it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, me too. I I started writing poetry as extra credit in my uh, senior English class. It was just like once a week you could write a poem for extra credit. It was so easy and fun that I couldn't resist, and I just started writing those poems for uh, Mister Mister Ajiri's English class. And and then here, you know, twenty plus years later, here I am. <laughs> I think it's more. It was more than that, though. Mm-hmm. I I was struck by Earl's poem when he said. We've labored in the dark long enough. Hmm. And I think that people who feel like they've been silenced and it, whatever's been silenced becomes really complex and they just want to express. I, I was really driven to express and tell my stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that ties back into the, the James Pennebaker stuff that we always talk about with, with expressive writing as sort of making sense of the world and, and healing you know, your mindset, too. And that's a lot of what this book is about, is making sense of the complicated childhood um, in which you grew up. Um, do you want to read another poem so we get a more, more of a feel for the book? Okay. Uh, ready then? Um, well, okay. The arc of the book is really about animals in an odd way. Mm -hmm. Uh, It goes through a sort of a redemptive arc, but there's a lot of animals because I grew up on this ranch and this is a story about my horse. A poem about my horse. Uh, This one's on 36. Chestnut mare. I have no reason to walk to the pasture anymore to stand at the gate calling her name, to see her head swing up, hear her knicker from wide nostrils as she gallops toward me, her thoroughbred muscles precise and angular with a machine's strength churning beneath her glowing coat, to grab a handful of mane, swing onto her back, lie face up, my legs dangling along her ribs while she drifts with her own lazy purpose out the gate 
eating clover and yellow vetch, milk thistle and barley, down to the full flowing river, my body becoming the sound of her big teeth cutting grass, her fur musk like dusty alfalfa, my life, her steady gait taking me on some unknowable path. And that was Chestnut Mare, another poem from Ghost Dogs, Dion O'Reilly's first book. And uh, and you mentioned, I mean, there are animals throughout this book because of where you grew up. And it made me think as I was reading it, um, you know, what are the differences? I don't have a whole lot of experience except for dogs and cats. I don't have a whole lot of experience with um, with different kinds of animals. Do you uh-huh. feel, I, I'm just, I was wondering if there's some sort of like universal feeling that like we're all the same, you know, between the horses and the mastiffs and the other animals and you too as a child growing up on the farm. Was there a sense of like connection or was there more of a sense of how different each of the animal species were because they're, you know, obviously different in so many ways. Um, how, what was your, your feeling about animals given the, the number that you grew up around? That's such an interesting question. <laughs> I've never... Um, there's something so real about animals. Hmm. Um, there's something beyond language, human language about animals where you connect with them. I think that knowing so many animals made me feel a connection to a wild part of myself. Hmm. Um, We had pigs, chickens, rabbits, mastiffs, many horses, cows, sheep. Did I say rabbits? We had rabbits. Yeah, there's, you know what, there's sort of this sense of peace with animals, like you touch their warm bodies. I have a poem, uh, it's not in Ghost Dogs, it's going to be in my next book about how I go out to the pig pen and lie down with the pig. Mm -hmm. And there's, um, you can feel that when you pet a dog, that's kind of universal, like you pet a dog and you can just feel your parasympathetic nervous system dropping you down into a more peaceful place. Mm-hmm. They're, they're warm bodies, you know, I'm mean, that that's the same with a horse. It's the same with a pig. It's when you hold a rabbit, just a sense of wildness and quiet and peace. Yeah. In that, yeah. That's really interesting to hear. I mean, I think I wonder if it's the sense of sort of like Zen, you know, because animals have, they, you know, they live in the moment in a way that we don't. We're always living in the future or the past and we're stuck with memories or worries and, you know, if you pet a dog, the dog is right there. If you pet a horse, if you brush a horse's mane, um, you know, it's it's just present in the moment. And, and maybe that, that helps you, too, which I think is what part of what the book is about, is how the animals help you through um, growing up and the difficulties there. Yeah, it's sort of how wildness, mm-hmm. wild wildness, kind of the natural world uh, kind of may, um, sustained me. Although I don't think anyone would call my book you know, a book about animals, you know, I don't think anyone goes like Mary Oliver, you know, (laughs) Um, but that, that is kind of what it's a, it's just how wildness and Mm -hmm. nature. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, What animals meant to you, I think. Uh, Let's hear another poem. All right. Uh, 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 Okay. Um, There's also, I think everyone agrees. My book is pretty intense. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I started off with some um, 
of the lesson tense. <laughs> This next one's called Alaska. Alaska. In the mist above Unalaska, the last harbor of the Aleutian Ferry Line, we hiked a tight path carved in the side of a rocky escarpment, pocked with dug-in bunkers where they'd shot down kamikazes in World War II. I was there with a man I didn't love anymore. He'd hit my son, called my daughter a bitch. I watched him walk in front of me on his thin ankles, imagined my palms shoving his shoulder blades, gravity destroying him on rocks I barely saw below. How easy it would be. No dividing assets, no serving papers, no $8,000 retrainer, to a chain-smoking lawyer. But I knew I could never keep it quiet. I love talking too much, letting myself out into light and air like a horse bucking from its stall. That midnight, the light finally faded. We staked a tent on an empty beach. I pulled driftwood into a pile, dry and ready for the touch of a match. The flames shot up 20 feet, black smoke, toxic as a venting volcano. The dead trees were saturated with crude, spilled decades before, a thousand miles away in some catastrophic wreck. Yeah, and that was uh, Alaska from Ghost Dogs. And you mentioned intense poems like that. Um, what is it that you that you think makes a poem intense? And admitting uh, that you want to kill someone <laughs> that'll do it. Well, obviously that would do it. Um, and what uh, and what is it about? Um, I don't know. Like, how do you feel free to write a line like that in a poem? Thinking about, I think that maybe that's a thought that, that you know most people have at some point of you know how easy it would be either to jump yourself or to push someone off, um, and then we we stifle that down and don't tell anybody. Um, but so, what is it? You know, how do you how do you feel free to write that in a poem? Well, you know, I don't think it's easy um, to do that. I think it's certainly a hard thing to teach people how to do. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think it's always good to ask yourself what you love about poetry and really think about that. And what I really love about poetry is when it's vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to think it was risk-taking and complicit complicity, like Tony Hoagland or something. But I really think it goes beyond that of really cutting, almost cutting in and saying the really difficult truth, which opens you up. It's a way of opening, opening yourself up to more meaning mm -hmm. um, when you make yourself vulnerable. What, when you say what you don't want to say, what's really hard to say, I think it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd go as far as to say that's the primary drive. I feel like when I'm, you know, reading submissions, what I'm listening for is just that honesty where it's something that, that is really authentic. And I don't know if I want to say, but I'm going to say it. 
Um, and this is the truth and I'm not going to sugarcoat it or, or make it flowery or, or try to hide the fact or make myself look good. But, um, but what's it going to, you know, what's going to do and where's it going to go and what the, what does the truth have to tell us? And I think we kind of have a, a sense of an ear for that. And I think that's what so many of us appreciate about poetry. And then with that poem too, I think it's fascinating that, um, you go past that moment into the, the metaphor of, um, the, the spillage from the oil spill miles away and way back in history being a sort of source for the fuel for that emotional impetus, which is really fascinating too. And I was wondering, reading that poem, if you had any idea that you were going to go in that place, or was it the process of writing the poem that that brought you to that revelation that the that the emotions there came from a deeper history? Uh, it took me a long time to get that ending. Yeah, yeah, it, it did. Um, especially just the the very last line. And then when I finally got it, it was like, yes, I probably had about 50 pages of drafts just trying to figure out that ending. Now I didn't know. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that's the interesting thing. I think that somehow kind of making that little cut into myself with admitting, um, <laughs> I want to murder someone. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that opened me up to the metaphor. Um, and I feel like one thing that's good about that ending is it takes the blame away from both of the people mm-hmm. is that this is something that's way beyond them in that moment. It's almost like generational trauma or something. It's something way beyond them. And I think it's just a way of, of zooming out and, almost looking at things systemically, not personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that really helps a poem when you can do that. Yeah. And, th- and that moment of, of choosing, you know, not to, to follow through on that emotional instinct. I always think about how, you know, the people who are abusive and, and dangerous and scar others, you do so for multiple people. And if we sort of all continued that cycle, then it, then everybody would be, be abused and abusive and it would just never end because, you know, so every, at every point, the majority of people have to say, I'm not going to do that, even though it's an impulse that I would like. And, uh, and that's kind of what keeps society going too. So that's, that's part of in the poem too, which is interesting. Uh, well, <laughs> one of my ex students, one of my ex high school students, um, read that poem, laughed and said, oh, the only reason you didn't kill him is because you're a chismosa, which means <laughs> the only reason you didn't kill him is because you wouldn't be able to keep your mouth shut about it. And it's like, there's another way that poetry saves me, you know, because I have to I have to say everything in poetry and it makes me a better person because I don't have secrets. <laughs> that's true. I mean, it's true. I mean, ha- not having secrets makes you a better person. I totally agree. And maybe that's the best good that, that poetry does in the long run. Is, like, keeps me people... out of jail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, let's carry on uh, moving through the book. Let's do another poem. Oh, all right, all right. Okay. Um, all right, um, safety, um, on page 86, <laughs> excuse me, oops, no, oh, sorry, uh, here we go, okay, safety, safety, no bone snapped clean, no bare chested bully, no bell calling you in, Safe, your blood warm, abandoned dog at your feet, 
A husband who loves you like a bird's nest of careful eggs. You can stand blank, letting light beam over the battered face of everything. The barbed nettles, tarred leaves of the bay tree, the pitter of river birches raining their catkins. You can feel how broken you are. You can't be happy in all this quiet. It frightens you. Knowing salvation is a point of light, the eye follows downstream. Not God, not the angry men you fell in with, not the mother who silenced you with backhands and bruises, not the bile green bitterness you learned to carry close like your own beloved. How can you forget the look of the sky as they beat you, telling you nothing of the beauty in your flesh. You've heard it takes one person loving a child for a child to survive. And you say, even if it's just a dog, it might be enough. The wind you listen to, the thin limbs, whatever it was that was given you that you don't know you have. And that was safety, again, from Ghost Dogs. And that line on there, that was just a breathtaking line. The, the how can you forget the look of the sky as they beat you, telling you nothing of the beauty in your flesh. Um, and, and that's the way a lot of these poems work, is just with really stunning images. Um, how, how is it, is that, how do you think about a poem working? Um, is, is it through image? Because you do seem to be an image-rich kind of poet. Is there a way that you... Um, like, how do you move through a poem? How does that poem, you know, how did that poem in particular, let's say, come to be? Okay, you want to know the secret of this poem? <laughs> yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> okay, um, well, this is something I teach my students, um, and many poets do this. You work from a word list. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't remember the words, but I'm sure it's bile, um, bare-chested. Um, I keep a list, and... <laughs> I put this one, this list in alphabetical order, and I pulled from the bees. Oh, wow. Interesting. So you're hearing this bub, 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 bub throughout the poem. I don't know if it's, if, it, if you notice it consciously, but no bone snap clean, hmm. no bare chested bully, no bell calling you in, your blood warm, abandoned. So um, it was from a word list. Um, Oh, that's really interesting. So the words kind of generate images and then move you sort of, you know, your your brain through story, through the images that you're seeing. That's really fascinating, actually. That was a turning point in my writing. Um, mm-hmm. At the beginning, I was more narrative, like Ghost Dogs is a more narrative poem, and it's an older poem. Um, and then sometime um, when I was in my MFA, I started keeping a word list mm-hmm. and writing the shorter lines but i think the important part of this poem is actually what's something that my dear friend danusha lamara said to me when um she read this poem is you know after you talk about um you know the angry man the mother who silenced you you have to have a little of your own complicity and so i said not the bile green bitterness you learn to carry like your own beloved that 
taking responsibility. And it's true, mm-hmm. you know, anyone who's been beaten, anyone who's suffered a lot of abuse, you carry all this resentment. I mean, any, that's probably why in the earlier poem, I'm thinking of pushing someone off a cliff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is just another example of really being vulnerable and really talking about not just the other people, but but the your own inner vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was so you know it started with the list, but then as I worked on it, um, I, I there was that turn was well, what's my part? Mm. What about me? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, the the MFA because you went to Pacifica University, and so you're part of that great fraternity of poets that uh, that just that I think that's the best MFA program in the country. I'm happy to uh, to to say that everywhere and hope people go because it's just a great MFA program. I think like of our Rattle Poetry Prize winners, like four have come from that program, and uh, just the best teachers. Um, what do you think it is about that program that makes it so good? And and, and what did what did you learn by being in that community? Um, well, one thing that's good is they really kind of let you, um, choose the stuff you want to read. Um, and they really work with you to go down your own path and it's not super academic. Uh, we do write there, there was a thesis and you write papers, but the emphasis is on the writing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think they, you know, we talk about that vulnerability. They really gave me a lot of permission. Mm -hmm. You know, that really famous poem, Satan Says by Sharon Olds, where she's in a box and that where she's just afraid to say things and she's being said that told by the devil to say things and she has to get complex and she can't be a writer unless she really expresses everything. And I really feel like the teachers there really gave me a lot of permission Mm -hmm. to be authentic. I mean, Kwame Dawes, um, I mean, when that guy is giving, telling you that what you do is good and that you can be a writer, you believe it. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I would too. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of good, a lot of good, uh, a lot of good teachers there. A lot of permission. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it too. Cause I think, um, I think that the two that always stand out to me, because I don't, we don't really read those like traditional bio notes that people send. But while I'm looking for the uh, contributor note that's interesting, people do very often put in their 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 regular where they went to MFA and where they've been published. And there's two programs: the the uh, Pacifica University and the SUNY Binghamton are the two programs that are just with a uh, with SUNY, of course, with um Maria um, um Maria. We'll just say Maria. <laughs> What's her name? Marie How? Oh no no Maria um yeah she was a guest on the Rattlecast what is her name I'm drawing a blank right now but 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 she's there as the sort of the head of that program and and they both what they have in common actually is that kind of openness um and and that 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 honesty that they're trying to pull out of students rather than telling them there's a certain way poems should be written there's this way of like find your way to speak the truth and be authentic which is what Sharon Friday just said be authentic and exactly um and I think maybe that's why those two poems just make such good poets or those two programs make such good poets um, yeah it's specific university that being said you know there's an awful lot of good writers that don't get MFAs mm-hmm. I mean Diane Seuss Denusha Lamaris Dorian Locks there's a ton of them. And I think that if people find good poets to work with and mm-hmm. workshop with good poets and 
they read a lot that I think what was good for the MFA with me for me was, you know, I started in into this really in a concentrated way when I was older, you know, after I retired from 35 years of high school teaching. And I just really wanted to get somewhere quick, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so that was that was good for me. But there's an awful lot of good writers without MFAs. Yeah. And, you know, there's a little bit about the MFA process and the workshopping that can be a bit demoralizing. Mm -hmm. I think in any program. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because those um, those two programs are the ones where I don't see this, at least in my experience. But there's a way that you can like workshop a poem to death and like just kind of suck the life out of it. And a lot of times there'll um, be a section that's like off and I'll be like, well, this poem is great, uh, except for this little stanza where it just feels like it's a different voice. And so often the poet will say, well, I did a workshop with, um, you know, in my class and they said that I needed to fix this and this and this. And it's just and then and so I'll say, show me the original <laughs> and the original will be much better and have the energy still in it and uh and so i think you got to be careful with those programs too in that regard that that sometimes workshopping poems is uh, a little dangerous for the life of your poem too it's a it's a line you have to walk between listening to advice but also uh trusting your your heart or your instincts too at the same time well i think that's what i learned more than anything else is that by the end i learned who not to listen to yeah, yeah that's important and, you know, I also, the same poems were going to be, were being looked at by, you know, Ellen Bass and Dorian Locks and Joe Millar and Kwame Dawes. You know, they're all looking at the same poem. And, you know, very often they were saying different things. Mm -hmm. So the, by, by the end, when I was working on my thesis, which was basically this book, this was my, this was my thesis. Um, I kind of could look at the poems and go, I, I can make the choice. Mm -hmm. I, I know if it's good. And, and I think that that was probably the most valuable thing I learned. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, it's an important thing to learn, especially. Uh, and I should say it's Maria Gillen. I was, it's Maria Mazziati Gillen. I was trying to combine okay. the two, her middle name and last in my head, which is why I couldn't remember it. She was a guest yeah. on Rattlecast. Oh, I don't know, like one twenty or something a summer and a half ago, I think. Um, so, so do check it out. She's just wonderful. She's kind of like, I, I wish she was my grandma. <laughs> That's how I feel after talking to her every single time. But um, if anybody has any questions for Dion O'Reilly, um, please leave them in the chat windows on either Facebook or YouTube. I'm watching both. If you're watching live on Twitter, um, I'm not watching Twitter, so uh, you'll have to jump over to YouTube or Facebook. But if you have any questions, do leave them. And, um, and I should also say, because I forgot to, if you're here and you're new, stick around for the open lines after we talk to Dion and uh, share a poem. Uh, that's part of it, too. So um, I want to make sure we get through... Um, more poems. Let's do. Want to do the next two poems? You want to do both French Kiss and um, If Time Another or Another Happiness? Um, okay. Let's see. Yeah, French Kiss. Okay. Yeah. Some of some of my stuff is funny, so I want to include a funny one. Um, French Kiss, and there's an epigraph. The study reconstructs the first microbiomes from an extinct hominin species and hints at intimacy perhaps kisses between humans and Neanderthals. Of course, I learned from him, that husky meat eater downstream with his sprung chest and hairy thighs, beautiful brute on the other side of the river, whom I watched in secret on hot Pleistocene days as he cared for the elderly, soothed the deformed and wounded, protected infants from our packs of wild dogs. 
My heart found its raw beginning, the day I saw him toss wildflowers on a grave, his feet solid on the young earth, as he gripped blue bonnets and dandelions, a few bruised roses in his beefy fists. Who cares if he never learned the finer points of moss eating or sometimes went cannibal? Wasn't he kinder, gentler than our gangs of village boys who returned riled from the hunt, the bloody thighs of megafauna humped home on their slimy backs? So I ventured out one night and found him at the edge of a bonfire's light, grabbed the smooth pelt, glossing his barrel back, pulled him to my breast and tongued him. I kissed that man from Neander Valley long and slow, delighted in the clout of his jaw, the muscled capture of his lips his fragrant saliva thick like some forgotten vintage. Don't tell me I'm fetishizing the other. I'm through with sapien men. Though my terrible uncle slaughtered every one of his tribe, I'll carry him in my mouth forever. Now that is a funny poem, The French Kiss. Uh, again, from Ghost Dogs. And and before I move to the next one, um, it, was, it was interesting reading that one, um, you know, how humor works in poetry. It's something I've always wondered about because we had a humor issue. We talked to Rick Lupert, who's very funny, um, a couple episodes ago uh, about this humor. And it's so hard to put humor on the page. And what stands out there is it, it's the uh, the way you draw it out that makes it funny, too. I mean, you kind of know what's coming, but you sort of you let it roll through the poem for a very long time and kind of linger there and waiting. Is it really going to happen? Um, and so that's what makes, I think, the humor work in that issue. Is, is that something you mentioned, um, you know, writing humorous poems? You know, is there something that you like a, a tool you go for while, you, while you're writing humorous poems? Is there a way to go about it? Because it is so funny to be funny on the page. Well, <laughs> I mean, I guess you just kind of have to look at yourself. And I mean, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I kind of do find the idea of making out with a Neanderthal kind of, kind of alluring. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's growing up with all those animals. I don't know. Um, but I think you just got to laugh at yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, too, like this poem really is a, a funny conceit. But I think that if you can look at the humor in terrible things, that really makes for a good poem. Mm -hmm. Just so it's not one note. I, I mean, I think it's a good exercise to look at something ugly and write about it in a beautiful way, or look at something beautiful and write about it in an ugly way. Um, so yeah, I guess it's just looking at the other side of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, let, let's hear the last poem in the book then. Um... Okay. This is kind of a funny poem too. Um, if any of you have ever studied with Frank Gaspar, Frank Gaspar says you should start your day writing an iambic pentameter. Oh, it's not the last poem. Oh, no, actually. it's not. No, what was I thinking? <laughs> um, 
And he, he says, you should start a day writing an iambic pentameter, even if it's just writing Detroit, 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 Detroit. That's that's something that Frank Gaspar says. So a little nod to him in this poem. It's toward the end of the book, though. Yeah, it's 82 if you're looking for it. I found it. <laughs> Another happiness. Publish your best work. Find a decent job. Eat some sizzling octopus, the many kissing tentacles meaty on your tongue. Success, you think. Joy, for a while anyway. Then it's another mess in the papers, the endless scroll of rapists and dead turtles, another photo of a world leader with his corn-baked face. So you go on a car trip to find some good rain. You get to Seattle and the lawns are scab brown. Your old home on the lake, a lime green high rise, always looking for something. Answer keys, antidepressants, more friends, another dog, Another slim poetry book where the poet keeps pushing and pushing line after line of exquisite description, one astonished metaphor after another, escalating into an ecstatic revelation. You can't write like that. You don't read enough Virgil and Milton. Don't start your day writing lines of iambic pentameter. Detroit, 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 Detroit. And you can't meditate like some of the big names do. When you sit, it feels like termites streaming in and out of your arteries. On the screen of your inner vision, all your arrogance, ecstasy, and gloom. Your crappy conversations with the bitches in Zumba Gold telling you to irrigate your nostrils, get therapy, put a prong collar on your mutt. But... Admit it. Sometimes in fall, you look up and see an arrowhead of duck flight, lonesome and luxurious. If only you could understand how fungus flowers from the mind of the land, how fractal arms of trees shard the sky. If only you could exult in ash falling the West on fire, it would be like you just arrived on Earth. And there was another happiness. Um, again, from Ghost Dogs, uh, Dion O'Reilly's book from uh, Terrapin Books. And um, there's a great question here. I'm really glad uh, Dick Westheimer asked this because I meant to and completely forgot. He said, could you talk more about how words wind up in your word lists? Uh, what attracts you to the words that wind up there? And, and that's what I was wondering about. Like, how did the word list be generated? It sounds like a cool idea for poems, but like, what do you do to make a word list? Um, well, you know, like if you have fun friends and you sit around and talking and they're talking about, um, kissing a Neanderthal, mm -hmm. you know, write that down. Uh, sort of like a comic, always keeping track of things. But even better is when you're reading poetry books, um, underline, um, and you know, I am not very reverential about 
keeping my books pristine. And I, I always like to have a really nice oh, pen, okay. just a really nice pen. And as I, I'm writing in that book, I'm underlining words. Um, and I mean, like a bird's nest that like, maybe careful, like a bird's nest of careful eggs and safety. Like maybe I wrote down careful that that's, you know, that's a good word, careful. And so I just underline words and phrases. And sometimes the poet just has an idea that's really interesting. Hmm. And I'll kind of write in the column, like, this is an interesting idea. And I'll write like my, like some notes of my own, just some of my own thoughts in the, on the side. And um, at some point, I will look at those underword, underlined words and I'll put them on a document and um, go back to them and use them if I get stuck or maybe I'll just kind of go through and pull words that are appealing to me that day. Like sometimes you don't know what you want to write about, but if you look at your word list and you go, oh, careful, that word appeals to me today. It might not tomorrow, but that's a good way to get a gauge on what you're feeling is by what words on your list just call out to you. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it, it makes me think of uh, building a fire, you know, like you're like stacking logs and then you're going to you know, light it with something and, and see, you know, if the fire starts. So that's kind of cool. Kindling. Uh, yeah, Kindling. yeah, exactly. Um, another question too uh, from Deb T. She asks, uh, given the honesty in the poems, um, are you concerned about people in your life recognizing themselves in the poem? Uh, did anybody get set that you wanted to push them off a cliff or, for example, or anything like that? Um, I haven't had any pushback, mm -hmm. <laughs> but you know, those, that's a really personal choice, um, for people. I, I have to write, so I'm going to write it down. I, I don't publish everything I write. Um, so I, I think it's important to at least write it down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if it gets published in a journal, maybe not rattle, but mo a lot of journals, people are not going to see it. Um, so a book is a little different. People are going to see it in a book, mm -hmm. but you at least, you know, publish it in some, in a journal. It's probably not going to be seen. Yeah. Thank well, God. An <laughs> well, an online journal though, which is why, I, I don't know, lately, if I was going to publish, I'd make sure there's an online component because they get around, like we'll have poems about some small town news article and then people will email me about it uh, two days later saying, Hey, I, that, that poem about me in your magazine, um, you know, they, 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 uh, they get around and online. So, um, that's always possible too. Um, uh, go back into the word list. There's a question from uh, CB 99 videos, who is of course, Carla Schwartz. She asked, do you ever start with one set of words from your list in a poem and then change it up with another set of words from the list? So it's really interesting. So, so people, uh, uh, this list thing it, it has got us all intrigued. So. Yeah. Um, you know, when I'm teaching, mm -hmm. I have a whole lesson on this. I call it my compost pile ah, because mm -hmm. it's, it makes things sprout out of it. <laughs> um, and it's my compost pile is like 300 pages long at this oh, point. Oh, wow. Wow. At, at least I'm always adding to it. And I use it in lots of different ways. Sometimes I'll start with, um, 10 words or so, and I'll use like maybe one of them. And then all of a sudden I'm just off and doing something completely different. Mm -hmm. And then maybe I'll get stuck and I'll go, mm, let's go back to my word list. So, and sometimes I use every single word. It, it's very flexible. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, probably great advice for anybody who, and, and we do get so much out of writing that we should have ways to write as much as possible. So it's a great, great resource for sure. 
Yeah, you know, I think it helps you um, think of things to write about. But I think one of the best ways to think of things to write about is to think about why you write. Mm, yeah. Just think about why is this important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think every poem should have a purpose. That's for sure. Um, yeah. And a lot of times on the critique of the week, that's something we'll do is we'll say, uh, you know, this poem is going well, but but what was the point? Why was this written? There's no why at the end to uh, give it a yeah. give it a reason or a meaning. The more you think about why you're writing, the more you bring meaning into your poem. Mm -hmm. You know, to be vulnerable, to tell the truth, to create community. You know, all these different to work out your stuff, you know, what, whatever your reasons yeah. are. Well, as long as it's not to, uh, to win awards and accolades and get rich. That's not yeah, the, because, yeah, the point. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're never going to be satisfied that way. You're never mm -hmm. going to enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, your, your next book, Sadness of the Apex Predator, um, which is forthcoming. Uh, we want to touch on that book, too. That's forthcoming mm -hmm. later this year, is it? or when is Actually, it? not till 2024. Uh, yeah, the, the backlog got you from the COVID. Probably everybody's behind. Yeah, I feel like I could publish another one before that one comes out. <laughs> Who, is it coming out for Terrapin again, or is it somebody else? Uh, no, it's uh, Wisconsin's Cornerstone Press, Wisconsin University Cornerstone Press. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye out. So what is uh, what the, what's the book about? Is there a theme that it's written around? Sadness of the Apex Predator is a very evocative title. It's got a lot about predation in it, but it's got a series of poems in it about when I was 19, I was burned. Hmm. And it's got some stuff about that. Um you know, the poems are about that sort of like the way ghost dogs are about um, animals, like if they're about it, but they're not about it. Um, but there's a lot of poems about that. And um, yeah, just predation, how we kind of prey on one another. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that makes it sound a little bit more bloody than it is. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, let's hear a poem from it. Uh, which one um, okay. Start with. I'll do one of my burn poems. Um, the poems are about that. So what's, like what's that noise? About, um, oh, oops, I'll put sorry. you on mute for a second. Can you mute that? You got it? Okay. Um, yeah, I clicked over to... <laughs> <laughs> I clicked over to uh, my... Okay. okay. All right. So, um, okay, here's one of the burn poems. Um, I was burned over most of my back mm. um, from my neck down to my heels. Burned body contemplates the bottom sheet. Not razors, exactly. More like powdered glass, gunpowder, asbestos maybe, superglue. So when I moved, it wrenched the dendrites of my skin. I had no skin. I'm sorry, I had no skin. What I really mean is the sheets were slim silver whips as slim and silver as millions of threads stitching their silver through what shouldn't be seen. The undergarments of flesh should be secret. The body is a fruit which should never be peeled, never eaten by air, never touched behind the thin curtain of its cover. The sheets were touch, not touch. There was no touch. There was a diamond, bright rake and flay I sank from into the dark red halls and caverns of my guts to the proper hush and flow machine of a living girl. Breath, nephron flow of urine, 
pancreas ooze of insulin, the wish, wish, wish of the heart crying itself out to the sheet, the sheet holding me. Wow, that is a powerful poem moving through those images. Um, <clears throat> is there anything you can tell us about about what happened and um, and how like how the recovery was? Like how long did it take? And and anything you can tell us about it? Um, well, it was a house fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was pretty strange because I was home alone and there was a fire in the fireplace. There was not a screen on the fire. I had made the fire to heat the house. And I was not standing anywhere in it, but all of a sudden I kind of spontaneously combusted. Oh, wow. I just, and was up in flames and I had a tie robe and I couldn't get it off. And um, I was in um, a burn unit in Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, which is one of the best in the world. Mm-hmm. I had really good care and I had 20 surgeries in a three month period. Oh, wow. And um, I burned off 80% of my skin, 60% third degree. And I was lucky to live. I was sort of uh, the, a textbook case. Like there were pictures of me taken and, and oh, stuff. Wow. Like yeah. 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 Well, that's a powerful thing to be writing a poem about or, or a book of poems I'm um, touching on um, and really well written and, and well described there. Um, do you want to do, let's see, well, I want to talk to you. It's a weird to shift gears from that intense topic, but I do want to talk about um, your, your thing with the, the, is it the hive? What's it called? The Hive oh. Poetry Collective. Um, yeah. And so, so what is it that you do there? It says um, it just in the bio, which I don't know anything about. Um, it produces poetry radio shows, podcasts, and events. So, what is the Hive Poetry Pro- Pro- Collective, and uh, and what do you do with it? Okay, well, there's four of us right now, um, and uh, Denisha Lamaris was one of the founders when she was po- poet laureate of Santa Cruz, and now and she's too busy, but sometimes she does some stuff. As Farnaz Fatimi, um, uh, Lisa Ortiz, Julia Chiapella, and Julie Murphy. They're all poets. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a podcast, which also appears on the local radio station. And we just interview lots of poets. Um, I've interviewed Diane Seuss. I've interviewed um, Gregory Orr. I've interviewed Aaron Ballou. Um uh, to, yeah, just a ton, a ton of people. Um, mm-hmm. um, and uh, then we also, every other month, we have a live reading and we get in all kinds of people. A real, I mean, the podcast, the radio show, and the readings have a real diverse different group of poets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Um, Cindy Gore here says, I've listened to that podcast and it's wonderful. Um, oh, cool. So, so how long uh, have you been doing it? Um, and, and how? Uh, yeah, three years. Yeah. Oh. Three years you've been doing it. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And and how would you say there's a one poet that you enjoyed talking to the most, or somebody who was the most surprisingly interesting? Let's say. Uh, Diane Seuss was pretty amazing. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I kind of mentioned the ones that I had a lot of fun with. I mean, like, I mean, some like Robert Stewart used to be the editor of New Letters. I loved talking to him. Um, Aaron, like Diane Seuss and I were kind of like soul sisters. I don't know. We really, we had a lot in common. We're the same age. We both were involved in the punk scene. Just really fun to talk to her. Aaron Ballou, I really hit it off well with her. And Gregory Orr, I really hit it off well with him. Um, There's just like a real... Uh, mm-hmm. connection there. John Sibley Williams, I thought was a really good interview. Um, oh God, I'm drawing a blank on someone I really enjoyed interviewing too. Um, Phillips. Um, Carl? or uh... Carl Phillips. Yeah, Carl Phillips. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was a really good interview. Yeah, his sentences, the way he approached sentences mm-hmm. was a, super interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Um, is there any way people can can find it? Is there a way uh, link on online? Is there a website that we can go uh, just to? Google the Hive Poetry Collective? Uh-huh. You can get it on Spotify, iTunes, um, anywhere you you know uh-huh. anywhere you at anywhere you get your your podcast, you can get it. Very cool. And, and there's a website too, hivepoetry.org. dot You can find it. There's there. hivepoetry.org. There yeah, mm-hmm. I should have mentioned that. We're on Facebook, uh-huh. Hive Poetry Collective at KSQD. I mean, it sounds like a radio show because. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to start. <laughs> I'm going to start interviewing people and not having it on the radio show, so that we can read poems with the F word in it and oh, stuff. Oh, I forgot about that aspect of it too. Yeah, we were thinking about doing a radio thing, and then I didn't want to have it be restricted like that, both for time and for you know language. And so that was one of the reasons why I didn't. I, I decided not to bother because it just wasn't you know something I want to do. And the best poets end always end up swearing. Like that's what I'm supposed to, but they, they just you know it just comes out. So it's always the poets I really like a lot that mm-hmm. end up swearing and I have to go back. <laughs> that's funny. Out. Do they bleep them out when they do, or they? I have to bleep it out. Yeah. Uh, that's too bad. <laughs> As if like the kids, like who in the world hasn't heard those words these days? You know, I think my eight year old probably has. I mean, the podcasts, all the podcasts are just mm-hmm. full of all sorts of irreverent stuff. Yep. Yep. It's true. Um, all right. So let's, uh, let's wrap up with one last poem from, um, from the new book. Um, okay. I think I'll read, um, right to life. That's kind of a cool one. Right to life. Yeah. It's a very inflammatory title. It is. Yeah. I know. Um, it's, yeah, Right to Life. It's got a epigraph from Kurt Vonnegut. I wish I'd been born a bird instead, he said. I wish we'd all been born birds instead. My mother hated her smell, her body hair, depilatory, antiperspirant, FDS, ozoned between her legs, a soap-soaked flannel scraped through dirty bits. The house was full of dog must and cat scat, but she dressed in pressed collars, her bundian toes stuffed into stilettos, her tits lifted in bras named for self-propelled underwater missiles. And my father, how she loved to beat a weak man but be entered by him as he cried for forgiveness. And so I was carried, made manifest and raised because it must be done like painting a kitchen yellow or beheading dandelions. 
She might have been a sea captain, a magnate, a second Stalin. I wasn't her choice. It's not that I wish I was never born, but rather that I'd passed into the universe some different way. Wind, dust, a thrush's song. Another powerful one that was Right to Life um, by Dion O'Reilly. And that's going to be from her forthcoming book, which you have to wait uh, a year and a half or so for it to come out, unfortunately. But, but really, those, are, those two poems you read from that book um, are really wonderful. Do you want to do the last poem, too? I think that we had a little... I forgot we started a little late. We had a little more time. Do you want uh, to do Peacock, too? Um, I wonder if I should do Peacock or this other one. Um, I'll do Peacock. Okay. I mean, people, people really enjoy Peacock. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's hear this one, too. All right. Uh, let's see here. Okay. Peacock. All Leafs punk friends hated me with my mullet and sellout job, no skin-tight glamour, no heroin pallor. I followed his band around Seattle like an orphan follows a stand-in dad, prayed a wave of energy might pass through him, a god particle oscillate his bones enough to feel me. But then... Oh, victory, he took a walk with me, the night full of wind, a storm lifting water from Lake Washington like it might become sky and drown us. He wrapped me in his arms, said I was his girlfriend, drove me home on his motorcycle to his bed, then fell asleep without touching me. And so it went for many years. There's more to the story, but I like best how much I craved him. Second best, how much I hated him when he took a second woman. I like to remember my fevered jealousy when he stole my peacock feathers, gifted them to her like a bouquet. How he let me smell her perfume on his sweater, watched me scream my dirtiest epithets as he fingered his guitar. It was 40 years ago. My anger tore like a firebreak against a greater flame. I like to think I'll never burn like that again, but I could. It's never too late to believe a beautiful story, start a war to keep it true. Yeah, Deanna O'Reilly, thanks so much for joining us. That was Peacock uh, from her forthcoming book, um, sadness of the apex predator which you'll have to wait a year and a half for but the poem we poems we were reading earlier was ghost dogs which you can buy right now do check out a copy of that from terrapin books i'm um, a pleasure talking to you a lot of fun and, and great poems dion as i knew they would be uh, thanks so much for being a guest thank you thank you tim thank you everyone yep yep take care okay we're gonna take a uh, quick break and we're gonna go to open lines now um the open lines how they work is first, I'll put this on screen right here. First, email your poems to openmic, that's openmic at rattle.com. And then I will um, send you the invitation link through the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube. So I'm pasting them in right now, and you can join me. 
Um, but email your posters to openmic, that's openmic at rattle.com so we can share the poems. Only join the Zoom if you have poems to share. If you would like to uh, just sit back and watch and read and enjoy the poems, sit right where you are because it'll be right here. We're just going to take a brief break and we'll go to uh, the open lines. So only come over if you have a share- poem to share. But uh, you can share poems about current events. You can share poems about... Um, um, the prompts you can share poems uh, that have been published recently and you're proud of and want to share that'd be a great use of this and we can show off the journals too that you were published in uh, whatever you'd like to do please do uh, join us on zoom if you'd like to share a poem so uh, hop over there I'll be right back with uh, open lines And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Uh, like I said, if you'd like to share a poem, join us on those YouTube or uh, a Zoom link on YouTube or Facebook where I've posted them. Now, one of the things you can do is a prompt poem. And we try to have a prompt poem every week. We had a prompt poem, or a prompt, well, we do have a prompt every week, but we uh, try to get it from the guest every week. And last week's guest, uh, Elaine, or no, was it Elaine Sexton? I cannot remember who the, who, <laughs> was it Elaine Sexton? Yeah, it was Elaine Sexton last week, I think. I, I'm getting confused as to who was who and which week was which, but I think it was Elaine Sexton. But this was her prompt, I think, Color Memory. And so let's, let's check out this prompt. Um, here, uh, Color Memory. What is your earliest memory of, of a color? Draft notes toward a poem, starting with the first thing, the first color that comes to mind. Name it and refine this description. Write down any and all details you can think of related to this color. Describing it so a reader can begin to see what you see in the circumstances around this experience. Joseph Albers, artist, color theorist, and arts educator, wrote, If one says red, the name of the color, and there are 50 people listening, it can be expected that there will be 50 reds in their minds, and one can be sure that all these reds will be very different. Um, He considered color to be passive, deceiving, and unstable. When drafting your next poem, describe the color in every action, idea, and concrete image that comes to mind. This may be a list poem, a prose poem, and see what comes. That was the prompt for this week. And my poem right here, I didn't know, I couldn't think of what the first color was. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I remember my first image is a dog running across my backyard. And there was every color already, so I don't know. So I um, kind of pondered that for a while. And then this was my, my poem, trying to think about first, uh, the, the first way things go. This is called The Orbit. The first color was none, only dark and a light not yet blue. First there was you and not you. Your first name was the difference. First there was same and not same, the song of the air and resistance. Your pleasure in pulling apart, the milk and not milk, the love and not love. The first bird's call was a dove and not dove. That was the start. It continues today, this cleaving your way through the world until done. And that's how it's curled, this pen and not pen. This sun and not sun, then this pearl again, this one. That is the orbit. Um, today's open mic poem for myself, the prompt poem. Let's see what you have uh, to share with us, and let's start with Carla Schwartz. Okay, Uh-oh. somebody's got Hi. Hang on one second. Yeah, not me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow, what a fantastic night of poetry! Thank you, Tim. And I did write a prompt poem. Uh, which I am calling Color and Early History. Interesting. Yeah, let me pull it up. And so is there? A, can you tell us what color it was without a spoiler alert? Well, it starts with powder blue. There we go. Okay. 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 Well, let, let's <laughs> and it, goes, it. For, goes from there. At four, 
Blue was powder blue. Sky blue on a summer's day. Medium blue of the embroidered Mexican skirt my mother wore so often in photos I equated blue with my mother. But on that day, in my lavender button-down sleeveless and red shorts, the day I forgot to bring my favorite, my only powder blue umbrella to Wendy's house across the street, that warm August day before the yellow bus would come to sever my every day with my mother, who painted me daily in reds, blues, yellows, that day under a sizzling sun, that day after realizing I forgot the cheap powder blue on its flimsy frame, that day I ran back across the street to the forest, green-sided, rented bungalow with the art studio in the back we lived in to grab my tiny powder blue thing, to expand it in full as I crossed back to Wendy's the street I plunged across, but never made it. That street I tried to cross twice that day at four. That is, until what hit the head of my small body, what hit in that flash, the powder blue crush, the car white, the color of my knocked out front teeth. Oh, wow. Powerful memory to come up there. Being hit by a car at age four. Very, very good poem. And I love the incessant like rhythm of that poem. That's the kind of poems I tend to like. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. That was great. Oh, thank you very much. Take care. Good night. You too. Good night. Uh, that was Carla Schwartz once again with um, um, Color and Early History. Uh, next up, let's see what uh, Dick Westheimer's got for us today. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How are you doing today? Uh, good. Uh, well, I did write a prompt poem again. I think I'm on three weeks in a row now of uh, of, of doing the Tim Green half hour before that. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. I mean, there's something about like the lack of pressure because, you know, if it's bad, you can say, well, it was just the half hour before the show. Well, yeah. <laughs> so that works. Uh, you can say that. But I think I'm going to, my, my um, uh, I'll, I'll read my uh, Poets Respond poem. I have a big announcement to make it short and you have a lot of people on here. Okay. Yeah. Let's... Uh... Let me uh, pull it up then. So, so if your poetry poem, poem, I forgot to pull it up first. So, so as uh, as I pull it up, what is your uh, your poem about? Well, uh, there was a new NFT salesperson uh, that was trending this week. Uh, this oh. guy named Trump. <laughs> oh, that and guy! I've heard of him. Ha- hawking NFTs. I know Katie was probably all over it, yeah. um, but uh, Katie Dozier. Um, so I just thought, what would my nft collection of trading cards look like <laughs> very interesting um okay so this is i have a big announcement i assume right yes i have a big announcement to make <laughs> okay i uh, i have a big announcement to make uh and it's sort of epigraph title donald j trump and nft salesperson i am releasing a deck of virtually worthless cards of me doing what a poet does Here's one of me lying awake at night, staring at the ceiling, obsessing about an opening line. Here I am wadding up a piece of paper, on it a seventh draft. Here I am standing over the stove, sautéing onions. Their smell stirs the hidden Proust in me. Oh, and this one, when I look like a nose-slapped dog, my fourth journal rejection. 
today. Tonight in bed, my wife asks to read this poem, says I left some things out. Poppy me, singing the tooth fairy song to our grandson. Baker me, pulling a perfectly brown braided loaf from the oven. Superhero me, playing with her on a sunny afternoon. Me being the largest part of her seeing stars. Yeah, great poem as always, Dick. And and yeah, so I had my ears perked up, of course, when that stupid, I shouldn't say stupid, that Donald Trump announcement, uh, because we have an NFT issue coming up. We're going to experiment and explore what's going on in NFT poetry and crypto poems. And I was literally going to start like promoting it and, and send that mass email that I do that day. And then I thought, I can't talk about NFTs the day Trump does NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to delay. That's why, if you're wondering why you get your um, your quarterly email this week instead of last, that is why. Because I, I take advantage of the uh, very short American news cycle and hope everybody forgot about Trump's NFTs by now. And I don't get a lot of hate mail for doing an NFT issue because it is a very interesting way that, that might be the, the way that we start um, sharing poems in a different way and having a kind of paradigm of how poetry works be broken and shifted around a little bit. It could be some good stuff. So I, uh, I hope so. And uh, I don't want it to be associated with uh, with that. It was probably money money laundering of yeah, some sort. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that is yeah that is that is very likely. Okay, well, I'll pick up my prompt poem next week. I think I'll save this one though. I could. Okay. Very cool. Well, okay. thanks so much, Dick. And always great talking to you. Bye. Okay. Was Dick Westheimer with? I have a big announcement to make. Yeah, that was funny. That 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 was that. Anyway, let's go on to uh, Brian O'Sullivan. It's uh, thank you, Tim. It's very right, very cool. That, very <laughs> cool that I'm going after Dick Westheimer because I wrote uh, after Dick Westheimer in my oh, in my poem that I'd like to read. Well, that is perfect. Let me pull it up. So, um, was this a prompt poem or was this uh, something else? This was a poet's response, but it was really a poet. It was really a response to a poet's response. Um, <laughs> But I submitted it as Poets Respond, yeah. Okay. Is this Photons? Yeah, here we go. Okay. Photons. Yes, that's it. Mm-hmm. And so this is after Dick Westheimer's poem. Um, um, not from, about... from last week. Yeah. yeah the the new, newly new moon. Yeah. yeah, very cool. Okay, let's hear it. This is Photons uh, by Brian okay. Selma. After I heard Dick Westheimer on the Rattlecast, surfing light's wave on one of light's particles, invoking the strong physical force that links moon to planet, child, patient, Sorry, moon to planet, child to parent. I dreamed I was Pluto, demoted, freezing in the void. When I woke, I remembered that even Pluto still has moons. Maybe I was no celestial sphere at all, just a petrified meatball at the back of the freezer. And then, as Jen, sleepily smiling, handed me my old glass cup with its faded logo of Temple U where we met, I remembered I'm half a stellar binary, twinkling and dancing in the darkness, sand satellites but linked and whole. But still we're a long way from the Milky Way, and longer still from the dawning galaxies just knitted by the web. Those pictures from space inspired a friend of friends at dinner to ask, how can we be seeing into the past? She made me wonder how the images stuck together across the light years. Why didn't all the photons fly off in many directions, like my ancestors, sailing on coffin ships or ocean liners to their separate destinations? Maybe it's not just the past if we're seeing it now, Jen says. Maybe it lives in the moment we see it. We all are quiet. And I think about the blazing light from a burning house in Clondarine Cork, torched by British soldiers, the house where my great-grandmother, while her children and her husband were missing around the run, lamented 
deadpan, the loss of her player's carton, with a gold star that would have won her more smokes. Her mask of humor has been our heirloom, and the light from her house is still spreading through us diasporic photons. And as I write this, my phone rings. It's my cousin Aaron, whom I met on Ancestry. I never seem to keep up with my cousins unless I just discover them or they me on the internet, and then it's as familial as two hams exchanging call signs. It's a weird mix of genealogy and astronomy. But Erin, frank and funny, and her big-hearted mother, Alma, had joined our constellation and we theirs, exchanging pet pictures and family memories on Facebook. And then when Erin tells me Alma is gone, and as Jen and I hold each other close, I think how strange it is and how necessary that waves of particles separated by light years or generations can still resolve, scooped up in the sweep of time and curve of space to make an image fragile and real. Oh, very touching poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was uh, Brian O'Sullivan with Photons. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Um, next up, let's go to uh, Jennifer Elise Wang. Hey, Tim. Hey, Jennifer. How are you doing today? I'm good. Um, I've got uh, one of the previous prompts uh, poems that I just took a while to write because uh, I was right in the style of her favorite poet. Oh, Mine that's is right. Percy Bysshe Shelley. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I'm usually not so great in meter. So the fact that like he could write so well in um, like pentameter and hexameter is really impressive. So I, I gave it a shot. Like he put a tribute to uh, John Keats. So I decided to do mine in the style of um, Adonais and called it Alastor, an elegy for Percy Bysshe Shelley. Oh, interesting. And before you, before you, well, actually, let's read the poem first. Go ahead. Okay. Alistair, an elegy for Percy Bysshe Shelley. I weep for dear dear Alistair. He is dead. He took a boat and now is lost at sea. Did eyes of his look at the storm with dread? To meet like minds was never meant to be. The liberal never was reality. Until three centuries to life it rose. Those words, alas, did not belong to thee. But blessed are we to have thine verse and prose, defying sharpened shears wielded by Atropos. So full of love that was, perhaps too much, in water and emotion were thou drowned. Us too, by ardent words of thine or touch, possessed was thee to move a floating cloud. Until the end, Prometheus unbound, did thou continue to revise. The Skylark's joyous song at last was found, although thou could not see it within, with thine eyes. To capture nature's glory did thou enterprise, and succeed with thy melodious prose. Your time here was tumultuous and fleet. What you could have created, no one knows. The triumph of life you left incomplete with of, and not an answer that's concrete to what is life. Yet you showed us the way to live and love so free with each heartbeat that powers every verse. You get one day more. Rest, Elastor. Safe with us, your words will stay. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jen. That was great. Uh, And definitely tough writing in that meter. Um, so, so what I wanted to ask, I was thinking back to what we did, uh, when that was the prompt and, and we asked everybody, it was really interesting. What is it about, um, Percy Shelley that, that makes them your favorite poet? Um, I think I'm a big fan of the romantics and I think that's, it just connected with, uh, kind of when I started to write poetry was when I was a teenager and really emotional mm-hmm. and you know, just the way they were able to both capture emotion and also, uh, being a lover of nature, like just the beauty of nature and. Um, yeah, I just really enjoyed kind of all the different aspects of the romantics. It, it works really well for someone who's like 
into gothic fiction and uh-huh. <laughs> in nature and all the things and yeah and just yeah the, i think both percy and mary too just they had a fascinating life and like mary's also a big in, uh, inspiration being like a creator of science fiction so just I love both of them. Yeah, very cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. It's always really interesting to hear. I really like that prompt a lot just for that reason because you got to hear everybody's thoughts about it. Thanks for sharing that, Jen. All right, thank you. Yep, take care. It's Jennifer Lee Swang with Alastor, an elegy for Percy. Um, I don't know how to say that middle name, Shelley. Percy Shelley, we'll just stick with. <laughs> Let's go to uh, Emily uh, Ferrari. I think might be a first-time caller. might be a second-time caller. Let's see. I've uh, I've been here twice. Oh, a third I think time three caller. times. Oh my three gosh. times. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, I haven't I haven't ever called, but I've just been listening. Well, I wouldn't know that. I don't have a camera <laughs> to see who's watching. <laughs> so you are a first time caller. Well, welcome to the show. So glad you could join and Thanks. share a poem. Um, what is it that you uh, you'd like to share here today? So I sent uh, I think my blue cow a response, mm-hmm. and but then when you said send in one that's been recently published. I sent another. So I don't know which one you have. I don't know. I have, uh, right now I have the persimmon tree, but then I could scroll down and do the other one too, probably. So whichever you'd prefer. Let's do my blue cow because it's the prompt. Perfect. Yeah, I love these prompt poems. I'm really curious what color everybody, because I couldn't think of a color. I don't know how, I really like <laughs> sat there for like a half an hour, just kind of like trying to make a color conjure itself up. And, and I had no memory of color. So. All right. Um, this is my first open mic, so I just wanted to put that out there before I started. Well, I'm so glad. Yeah. (laughs) So this is my blue cow. Have you ever seen a blue cow? No, no, neither had I. But the instructions clearly read, color the cow, B-L-A-C-K. Didn't make much sense to me, but being less attentive than obedient, I picked up the blue crayon stub and carefully meticulously, beautifully colored blue, my empty cow, with such intensity and purpose that under my fingernails, the waxy blue was caught and my small fingers ached with effort. Until a thick and waxy, brilliant hue stretched from chuck to flank and round to shank, no line strayed without, no infinitesimal white fleck remained within. And with sudden inspiration, I turned the small stub sideways, scratched it lightly back and forth till it flattened into a gentle sky, leaving space for clouds to fill and cows to fly. A different type of teacher might have said, oh, the instructions you've misread, but look where your imagination led. A different type of child might have laughed it off held tight to blue notes and taken flight. Oh, that was an excellent poem. Great memory, my blue cow. Thanks so much for sharing that. And, Thanks. Um, yeah, and, and where are you calling from? I forgot to ask. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh, excellent. I love Pittsburgh. It's a great city. Me too. Yeah, it's thanks great. for calling in. Uh, and that was Thanks. My Blue Cow by Emily Ferrari. Thanks, Emily. Uh, is Deb still here? Let's go back to Deb Tannenbaum because she's got her poem... Hi. There she is. Hey, Deb. Yeah, <laughs> I sent the wrong address. Oh, so there you go. Right. Well, that would explain it. <laughs> I should have thought to check, though, because that's, that's a common thing. Um, oh, okay. So, so this is the, you were explaining it before, this is the, gu- the guzzle after the Wizard of Oz, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. To, uh, kind of just for fun. Okay. Um, boomer kids watched it in the 60s, bushwhack back to back then. 
in black and white since color TV was lacking back then. At night, we cowered in bed. The witch invaded our heads, cackled, sent flying monkeys to attack back then. Later in color, somewhat obscene, the witch's skin glowed green, her cloak and pointy hat, a conservative basic black back then. A yearly special on quaint TVs, color, music, and munchkins, small screen spectacular back then. Watching was both scary and fun. Was Dorothy grown or young? Catching songs from the soundtrack back then. A yearning to travel over the rainbow and to follow, follow, follow the yellow brick track back then. Dorothy, Toto, Tin Man, and Cowardly Lion. How cool that the scarecrow was sourced from a haystack back then. When scarecrow linked arms with Dorothy, big smiles, their instant friendship so attractive back then. The wicked witch hexed a field of red poppies. Dorothy and Toto grew sleepy, slumped like slackers back then. Glinda the good witch glittered and twinkled her wand. When evil struck, good magic counteracted back then. And the wonderful wizard, what kind of dude was he? A full of hot air quack back then. The witch lit scarecrow on fire. Dorothy threw water. The bad witch melted, got wetly whacked back then. Oz was colorful, but there's no place like home. Just three clacks of Dorothy's heels and black and white Kansas doubled back back then. The movie and Debbie both aged. Deb so changed, the movie static. Anything static can stop and spin you. Cul-de-sac you back to back then. Oh, that was excellent. I love that. Uh, I've never seen a, a repeating rhyme there in the, yeah. uh, in the guzzle before. Very cool form. Uh, leave it to a boomer to write a Wizard of Oz guzzle. And it has all the uh, the guzzle elements, if you're wondering. if, if uh, So it's two line stanzas with the same last words repeated in the rhyme before and this was the act back and then uh, you got to reference yourself in the last stanza too which Deb does so uh, excellent guzzle right, right uh, hit all the points thanks for sharing that and it was a great back then's a great choice for uh, for the nostalgia excellent uh, thanks for sharing that Deb okay thank you yep, take care it's uh, Deb Tannenbaum with uh, leave it to a boomer to write a Wizard of Oz guzzle which I think I've gotten used to saying guzzle instead of gazelle finally after 15 or 20 years. So that's good too. Let's go next to, um, who do we have? We have Guy Chambers. Hi, Tim. Hey, Guy. How are you doing tonight? Oh, pretty good here. This, I got a, well, I got one poem here, then I got a micro poem after. I don't know if we have time to read it. But yeah, if it's a micro this, poem, let's just do a micro yeah. poem. That's fine. Okay, yeah, uh, this, for this first poem here, well, I think I talked earlier today at night about uh, a list, you know, like words and stuff like that. I used to do that. I do that a lot of times to get my poems. I get one word that sticks out of summer where it's talking to somebody or a radio, and another word come, pops out and stick out and say, what can I, then put them together and say, what can I develop on this? And this title actually has come from that type of wording. It's called Six O'Clock Thin. This is published in my book or the theater like I showed last week there too. So, okay, here goes. Six o'clock thin. The October wind. Leaves change colors. Old man walking home. Shuffle feet. Loose suspenders. 
pants dragging along the sidewalks. Zipper, open and wet. Granny knot tie, uneven buttoned shirt. Odd socks half rolled up. Rough green face, ears wrinkled down. Thick glasses with lost boy's eyes. Plumbering left hand, buffalo thoughts. Even song in his head, the words adrift. Subdued, measured. Sitting on a bench at the bus stop. Staring at cars going by. No heart at his side to guide him. Only a king for a helping hand. Speaking out into thin air. Unknown what he, what he said. It's six o'clock. Nobody knows him. The wind's getting much colder than before. Knew the way once before. All the tears fall the same. Excellent. Thanks so much. That was a, that was a six o'clock thin by Guy Chambers. Yeah. And do the, do the micro poem too, the louder. Okay. Yeah. Hey, loud. It's called louder. A beating heart is louder than words. Ah, ain't that Thank the you. truth? Yeah. Thanks so much for yep. sharing that guy. Excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah, excellent little pair there. Thank you. There's a guy, Guy Chambers with a poem and a micro poem. Let's go next to uh, Brent Stoffer. Hello. Hey, Brent. How you doing? Hey, Tim. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Yeah, another nice, fun night of poetry. And I see you have oh, a prompt yeah. poem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I, I sent two. I sent, I sent, well, I sent a revised edition. So if you find one that says revised, then that's the one ah, that I'm going to I'm be glad with. you said that because I opened the first one. Good job. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I uh, it's it's revised, but it's still in its early early stages. Mm-hmm. So please keep that in mind. It's it's uh it's still nascent, if you will. Okay, good. <laughs> well, I, as always, I'm looking forward to everybody seeing what color. So far, we got a lot of blue, which uh, yeah, yeah. Well, this this is not that, but um, like Carla's, mm-hmm. it starts off all um lovely and then takes a somewhat violent turn at the end interesting so, or in the middle story. um so i'm calling it for now i'm calling it color theory okay um the first color i remember the variegated brown of a big wooden spoon not the rugged russet of a rinsed potato glistening of glistening on the cutting board not the midnight glow of cynthia's skin as her hand traced unknown alphabets across my chest. Not the rosy ochre of the fallen acorn uncrowned on the forest floor. Not the shadowy umber of blood dried and caked onto my shirt collar. Not the burnt sienna of a cone of nagchampa insects yearning for the flame of attention. No, just the humble earthy brown hues of a serving spoon. The differing shades ran the length of it like veins in a wrist. I can see it clear as day. Sunlight barged through the kitchen window and struck that hard wood, that wood hard and clean. The sudsy sink water I was being bathed in was warm and motherly. I can feel the air make way for the swing of the thing. I can't feel it hit, though. 
maybe the blow never landed. Maybe it never even happened. Or maybe this is it. All this. The long line of mahogany, amber and auburn, acorns and lovers, blood and vegetables, riding the ripples of the wake of a bombastic past into the unseen future, this whole vividly, stubbornly stained life. Oh, wow. That was a, a surprising twist at the end. You warned me, and I still, like, forgot or something halfway through, and yeah. I was still shocked at that turn. I was expecting it to be some sweet thing about, you know, your first well, uh, mashed yeah, potatoes yeah. or something, and then... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, very good, good, powerful poem, though. Thanks for sharing that, Brent. Always a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. Great prompt. Yep, take Look care. Look forward to hearing everybody else. All right. Awesome, thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. It was Brent Stauffer with... Uh, uh, color theory and uh let's see let's go next to mike bales good evening it's me in the flesh rather than the manuscript tonight <laughs> perfect um, yeah, good to see you how are you feeling after that under the weather a little bit tired i don't know what it was i could have been exposed to something last week but sinus is bad and i slept a lot a couple days um I like my poet's response poem, but everyone seems to be doing color poems, so I'll do that. <laughs> okay, whichever um, you prefer. It's a poem called Icon. Mm-hmm. Um, this first memory, uh, if you want the colors, it's kind of red, blue, and white, then gray. Um, it's actually, I think, about a father's job. And the poem's called Icon. When I was about... I was about four when my dad and mom bought me a tricycle, red and blue and white, I perceived, and the porch is gray as it spread across the front of the house in Peoria. I turned to notice my dad and my mom standing in the doorway, and they smiled at me. Under their watch, I drove back and forth across the porch, and that would be good for the first time. Downhill, Captains muscled their loads to the Mississippi. I've seen it before with my dad as we watched the waters of the Illinois rise. As my dad watched me go further and further down the sidewalk each day, I smiled at him, knowing I would fly. Oh, excellent ending there. I love that, Mike. That was an icon by Mike Bales. Thanks so much for sharing that, Mike. Okay, thanks. Yep, take care. Yeah, Mike Bales with Icon, another color prop poem. And then uh, last but not least, let's go to uh, Katie Dozier is here. Hi, Tim. How are you? Hey, Katie. Good. How are you? I was wondering if you might come on because you uh, sent poems the last two weeks, I think, or maybe two of the last three. So uh, here you are in person. I decided to stop being so shy, and I've been encouraged because other people said it was their first time, so we're all in it together. Not my first, but not too far from my first time. Yeah, it's been a while. I think the last time was like way back in last summer or something when you had a Poet Respond poem. Oh, man. I didn't realize I've been slacking that hard. That's too bad. <laughs> I think so. So, uh, so you have a color poem here, and uh, that's the one you want to share, right? Yeah, I do. As long as rainbow counts as a color. Rainbow is every color. So <laughs> and color, even, more, right? even more colors for the mantis shrimp, I've heard. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So this is called What Goes Up. Okay. A rainbow tent, sun-pressing prisms on the bluegrass, a giant fruit bowl, we laughed, my sister and I, back when a bunk bed was a dream and dolls snoozed in our arms after a picnic of mud pies. Up on the hill, the rainbow tent became a kite. I sprinted after, yelling, 
but as far from unzipped anger as the clouds. I plopped down inside the seams and she joined me in our Roy G. Bib boat, tumbling down a jumble of loose tooth giggles, bumping the ground, each other, bruises formed, too fresh to feel, the rainbow landed, a cocoon. Excellent. That was What Goes Up by Katie Dozier. And uh, another great, so so many childhood memories are coming up from these, which I should have gone, I went to like infant and uh, that was not a good idea because you have no memories as an infant. It would have been much better if I, if I picked just some early memories, but that's great. Thanks for sharing that, Katie. Good to see you. Thanks for a great night of poetry. It's been really great. Yep. Thanks. Right. All right. That was Katie Dozier with What Goes Up. And that is going to close out the Zoom. Um, so let's go, let's see, we have a few minutes um, and we have a few more people who sent poems in who could not make it. Um, let's do, uh, Sharon Ferrante's got a poem. She said, I'm not watching the show, but not up to, or I'm watching the show, but not up to Zooming. If you have time, could you read this for me? So uh, here's a three sen, I still don't know. I've done many, uh, you know, Japanese forms issues. I don't know how to pronounce Senryu, Senru. I still, somebody's got to, got to tell me who knows. But these are three Senru, Senryu from, uh, for Antique Rose from, um, uh, from Sharon Ferrante. So here we go with these. Let's do, uh, here we go. I'm sorry, I gotta make it bigger too. Three Senru for Antique Rose. Delicate the hue of my young hand, I search the box. Dusty pink, my grandmother's cheek. Fading lyrics at the end of a song, a quiet rose. So those are three Sen Ryu by Sharon Ferrante, which makes me think, I love the dusty pink, my grandmother's cheek. That's my favorite one. And it makes me even think, I do want to do some kind of um, um, kukai, where we share poems, like a special event, maybe once a month. I think it'd be really fun to just do haiku. That's the haiku drinking parlor. You can drink coffee or water if you'd like, but uh, I think that'd be a lot of fun to do, maybe not as the Rattlecast, but as like a separate event. I keep thinking that. Um, and that would be perfectly applicable, Sharon Ferrante. Great, great senru there. Let's see. Um, Angela Gartner has one, two, and she's not here. Let's do uh, Angela Gartner's. This is uh, The Illusion of the drive through Lane. The Illusion of the drive through Lane. They keep coming out small for some reason. There we go. The Illusion of the drive through Lane. I smell the exhaust fumes from an SUV in front of me. The lines of lights in the rearview mirror waiting. I see a hand open to grab their order at the window. The small cups of coffee with cream and sugar. It's like when the internet gave me disease choices. Sneezing and coughing, chest like a twisted towel. It said maybe I was dying that day or next week. It's so easy to click the side of the phone to order a seven-foot tree to have it arrive with no leaves. The empty parking lot of the coffee shop had open signs to come in, but everyone's outside in a line that progressed only a few more inches. Oh, that was a great poem. Excellent. The Illusion of the drive through Lane by, um, uh, by Angela Gartner. Really enjoyed that poem. A great, great emotion at the end there. Thanks for sharing that. Um, next up, we have a couple more people. Let's see if we can do, let's see if we can get Nivedita on here. And, um, I gotta download Nivedita's though first. Download anyway. Okay, so while this is downloading, we'll do Ted Guevara's poem. And Ted has. And of course, as Ted, as always, shares a, a stock photo for us to enjoy um, that kind of goes along with the poem. 
Um, he says, I'll try to call in and gather my nerves, but read it if you will, please. And, and this picture, for those just watching at home, is of some bison. It looks like probably um, Yellowstone Park. Uh, some cool-looking bison in the field. And here is Ted Guevara's poem, Obituary of a Quartz Watch. You know, I think I made this. This is what I did. There, that'll fix it. We'll make that bigger that way. Okay. Obituary of a Quartz Watch. Did TikToks outlast the leather? There's no end to me. Maybe neglect from bedroom boredom. But brands really matter in the want. So he gave up drinking from another death. That certainty dampens my purpose. Sober to life's meaning. Calm the wrist. Calm the sorrow. Gucci, I was. We're always in need of the inanimate bling. Owning drops, occult once. The heart falls out the window. I'll no longer dazzle, but in my lonesome span. He had decorated her. What tripped him so was the end of his giving. Life diminishes over an unforeseen cliff. My ticks would survive each drop, outlast such poppycock. <laughs> Very interesting. That was obituary of a quartz watch. Thanks so much for sharing that, Ted. Always a pleasure. Let me see. Oops. Hang on one second. We don't want that yet. Um, and let me see if we can get Nivedita's poem up with Nivedita there. This is um, black is the color, so you can guess what color she was going for. Hello. My name is Nivedita, and this is my attempt at the prompt poem, Fratelcast. Black. What's in a color? I do not have a favorite color. No partiality. But not all colors are created equal, just like not all of us are created equal. I have no color associations, except for ebony, sable, raven, charcoal, obsidian, midnight, a rose by any other name. The color beyond all colors, if it is even a color, black is just void now filling the space my happiness used to reside in. Black is the color of elegance, of sophistication. Black is the color of bleak, associated with funerary elegance. But is death ever dignified or even sophisticated? Black is the color of sadness and anger. Black is beautiful. Black is necessary. Imagine the dazzling golden zari shimmering on a jet black ganjivaram sari. The golden threads highlight the bleakness of black, transforming the sober to the sunny. Everything needs a bit of black to stand out. Everyone needs a bit of black to stand out. When I was young, I did not wear black. My soul was suffused with a rainbow of riotous colors that expressed themselves with abandon in my clothes. Now, too, I do not wear black, even though the colorful clothes I now wear are for camouflage. Black is everything. Black is nothing. Black is not a color. Black is intensity in and of itself. Black is the color of shadows. Black makes us appreciate the light. Black is what stays with us to the end. Black. Just black. Excellent. That Thank was you. Have a lovely day. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah, you too, Nivy. Thanks so much for sharing that. It was Nivy DeCarthic with Black, her color poem for this week. And uh, sorry for the delay getting it all set up. Um, I thought I was doing a good job, like housekeeping and making it so there weren't so many things to click on. And oops, I clicked on the wrong thing and deleted the wrong thing. But anyway, that is the it for the open lines. Now let's uh, let's see. 
Yeah, so let's do, it's time for the Saiku. Let's do this week's Saiku, and the Saiku is right here. It's based on this story. Um, this is from uh, the University of Illinois. Let me put it on screen. Hopefully everybody can see. We'll just get that. Okay, so, um, so researchers propose new structures to harvest untapped water or untapped source of fresh water. And so this is researchers at the University of Illinois who have modeled out the fact that there's so much water vapor sitting around over the ocean that we could just harvest there by um, having it be condensed you know, with electricity and fans. And, um, and because the moisture from the ocean is always regenerating itself and make the, the um, evaporative pressure decreased, and so more will evaporate, and we'll just keep harvesting water. And we can solve our drinking water problems just by... Um, by having these like machines out in the ocean, which is very interesting, um, and uh, it would be nice though if we we talked about saving and preserving the water that we already have instead of uh, you know depleting all the aquifers. But you know, in the case because we do what we humans do, we need more fresh water. Here is an idea for how we might get it, and you see they have it powered by, of course, wind and solar uh, to create the electricity, so it will be carbon neutral as we pull the uh, water vapor out of the air over the ocean. So uh, interesting little. Little uh, article there. And the Saiku is this right here. Making water from the air we breathe, this alchemy. Making water from the air we breathe, this alchemy. That is the Saiku for the day. And that is the show for the day. Next week's prompt, I think we're going to switch this up a little bit. So I was going to say, um, write a list poem, you know, because it is the season. Ho, ho, ho. Santa's making his list and all that. Uh, I was going to say just write a list poem and use Aaron Murphy's The Internet of Things as an example, um, which is a – maybe we should share that poem anyway. I was going to. But, um, but, but since, um, since the list became so prominent in this week's episode with the way that um, John O'Reilly uses lists to generate poems, let's, when we say a list poem – and I'll, I'll clarify when I put it in the, in the show notes and stuff – let's do one of a list poem like Dion O'Reilly does. Um, so maybe there's some kind of psychic thing going on where we said list poem – when it's uh, when it's you know Dion is so uses lists so 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 much, um, so let's do that and let's like make a list of words uh, like Dion does and then write a poem using those list of words as inspiration. So read something, pull out the words you like and are drawn to, make a list and then write a poem based on that list. That'll be our list poem. That's gonna be next week's prompt uh, for Rattlecast number what one seventy four. Next week's guest is going to be. Um, John Brem and his newest book is No Beats at the Day. John has one of my one of the most popular poems on Rattle. It's um, Dear Internal Revenue Service, which we share every like probably on the Rattlecast. I've shared it a whole bunch of times. Every um, every uh, April fifteenth, we like to share this poem. It's a great poem about um, about having to pay uh, for for poetry, basically uh, the the paltry peanuts we make. Um, he's got another poem. He's a Rattle Poetry Prize finalist as well. He's got a whole bunch of great books of poetry. His newest one, like I said, is No Day at the Beach. That'll be the next guest, Rattlecast number 174. The regular time, it's just December 26th. It is Christmas the day before, uh, but we'll do in the show the next day anyway. Monday, December 26th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And we'll be right here with your list poems in Dion O'Reilly style. So check that out. Hope you have a great weekend and a great holiday, uh, whatever you celebrate. And we'll see you for Critique of the Week, and then we'll see you next Monday for uh, John Brem on Rattlecast number 174. Take care, and good night.